0: Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Highland Park Baptist Church. The preaching and teaching ministry of Highland Park is led by our pastor, Dr. Jeremy Wallace. Our desire is to help you grow in your faith so that you can better glorify God, make disciples and love others. To learn more, visit us at hpbc.church. Now, here's this week's message. I want to encourage you to grab your copy of God's Word. If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And open with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We just heard the account of Stephen's death. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be stoned to death? I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to be standing with 30, 40, 50 people all throwing rocks as big as they can hold, as hard as they can with the goal of ending your life. When we come to this portion of Scripture, that is what we see happening at the end. Our message this morning, though, backs up a few steps and shows us what leads to that. Just to kind of give you a little bit of a backdrop of what's taking place, the church is flourishing. We've already been talking about this. We've already been seeing this. The church is flourishing, and thousands of people are coming and are giving their life to Christ. I mean, we saw it in Acts chapter 2, over 3,000 people were saved. A few chapters later, thousands more people were saved. They're coming into the church. The church is growing. The church is flourishing. The church is sacrificing to meet each other's needs. The mission is, is advancing. The gospel is spreading. Lives are being changed. But there's some people who don't like it. In fact, you have the religious leaders in Jerusalem who are watching this and they feel threatened by this. And they, they see all these people coming and giving their lives to Christ and they don't, they don't know what to do about it. And so initially they began to kind of, under the table a little bit, silence this, to, to squelch this. And so they arrest, if you remember, they arrest Peter and John and then bring them in and, and they kind of charge them, command them, threaten them, no longer speak in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John, if you remember in Acts 4, say we can't do anything else other than talk about Jesus. They arrest them again. They flog them, beat them severely. And again, they say, no longer preach the name of Christ. And Peter and John go out. But now, as the church continues to flourish... As this early church in the book of Acts begins to grow and is, is gaining momentum, so to speak, and more lives are being changed and these religious leaders look at this and they see all of these people coming and pledging allegiance to Christ and pledging allegiance to, to this, this person that they just crucified not long ago. They are looking at this and they say, you know what, we've, we've got to do something. Th- this growth of the church is happening too quickly. We are losing the people. We are losing control. What What can we do? In fact, if you look all the way down to Acts chapter 8 verse 1, you see this persecution kind of ramping up. Saul agreed with putting him, talking about Stephen, putting him to death. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. This wording indicates that there was a specific intentional program that was put together designed to harass and to persecute the believers. In that first verse, we see that all the Christians were being affected by this. They were were being drugged from their homes. They were being scattered from Jerusalem. The persecution was so severe by the time we get to Acts chapter 8 verse 1 that that the Christians are fleeing. They, They are afraid for their lives. Aren't you glad that we don't live in a place where we are fleeing because we are afraid for our lives simply because we're Christians. We should be reminded of the blessing that we enjoy to worship freely. Well, that's the backdrop of what's happening. That's the backdrop of what's taking place. And all this persecution leads up at the end of chapter 7 to the, the stoning of Stephen, to his being put to death because of his faith. But what I want to do is back up just a little bit and And ask this question, what can we learn from Stephen? I mean, this is a large portion of Scripture. In fact, we're looking at Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8, all the way through Acts chapter 8, verse 3. Looking over 60, 70 verses, we're not analyzing each one of them. In fact, I would encourage you, though, sometime this next week to read all of that in one sitting. Can you do that? Read all of that in one sitting to get the whole picture. But what I want to do is kind of zoom out just a little bit and say, what can we learn from the life of Stephen? We see him being put to death, but what is it that we can learn through the events leading up to that, and even that event, that we can apply to our lives and say, you know what, this will help me be a better Christian? There's, there's several things I want to show you. If you. Have your bulletin on the back; you'll see an outline, and let's just walk through that and show you several and see several things that we can learn from the life of Stephen. Here's number one: Stephen spoke with wisdom in the face of opposition. If you look at chapter 6, verse 8, you see that Stephen is full of grace and power. He is performing great wonders and signs. You skip down to verse 10, you see that these people are unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. So in, in the face of opposition and in the face of persecution, Stephen is still speaking with the wisdom of God. He is still bold about the message of Christ. He knew that there was a threat against him. He knew that there was a danger For him speaking about Christ, he knew that if he proclaimed Christ, he knew what happened to Peter and John. He knew that the very same thing would be really a possibility for him as well. His speech, though, here's what's interesting. As the opposition came and as the persecution came and as as the people got more and more mad, as we read about just a few moments ago, it's still interesting to me that how Stephen communicated was full of wisdom. Meaning the opposition that came to him didn't change his attitude towards them. As the persecution came, as they became more angry and hateful towards his message, he continued lovingly proclaiming Christ. Now here's what we like to do, or often do. We cling to the message, but when opposition comes and ridicule comes, we may still cling to the message, but our attitude changes. Right? I mean, we become argumentative. Are any of you just naturally argumentative? I see people pointing at the person sitting beside them. (laughs) There are people who are naturally argumentative. What happens is when we we, we will live out Christ and we'll proclaim Christ as long as people are open to it. But as soon as there's pushback and ridicule and debate, our our whole demeanor changes to we have this attitude of hostility, this attitude that's argumentative. What Stephen does, though, is he does not allow the external circumstances to change his attitude or to change his message. His message pointed them to Christ, his attitude pointed them to Christ, and how he communicated the message pointed them to Christ. I think that is a great lesson for for us to learn that as we live this mission that God has given us and as we strive to point people to Christ, if we face opposition and ridicule, We still have to be people that through our attitudes and through our actions and through how we communicate the message, we indicate that we trust in the wisdom of God and we are led by the Spirit of God. If at any point in our witness and in our testimony, we are committed to the message of God, but we care nothing about the wisdom of God and we do not want to be led by the Spirit of God, that should be a sign to us that there is a problem. The message we communicate should be validated by our attitude. The message we communicate should be validated by how we communicate that message. I think we're all familiar with people or examples of people who have the right message, but in how they communicate that message, they undermine the cause of Christ. Let's not be those people. Let's be a people that when people hear our message and then they look at our lives and they see our attitudes, they walk away saying, I may not agree with the message, but their attitude and their actions validated and backed up the message. is not that a great testimony? I mean, have you ever met someone who is so kind, but yet they can speak truth into your life? Maybe not. (laughs) I mean, these people, they can walk up to you and they can say, listen, you messed up. And you walk away saying, you know what? They love me. (laughs) They speak truth, but they love me. We need to be the type of people that we can go to someone and we can tell them they need Jesus. But when they leave, they know we care and we love. Meaning our attitudes and our actions validate the message. And we're going to see more of this in the life of Stephen here in a minute. Let me give you number two. Stephen was committed to Scripture. So in this effort to live out this mission to lead people to faith in Christ that ultimately led to his death for Christ, he's completely committed to Scripture. In fact, most of chapter 7 is this sermon that Peter preaches in the face of this hostility right before he's stoned to death. He gives this message. But what is interesting about this message is that it is saturated with Scripture. Before I show you, when we break this down a little bit, I think it's important that we understand something very crucial We have to be a people who value Scripture. We have to be a church that emphasizes Scripture. See, I believe very firmly that it is the faithful and accurate preaching and teaching of Scripture that God uses to grow His people and grow His church. If at any moment we begin... Being a people and being a church that trusts more in our ability to attract and trusts more in our ability to program and trusts more in our ability to exercise human wisdom than we do the Word of God, then we have no future. We have to be a church that relies solely on Scripture. And Stephen does this. In fact, if you look through chapter 7, you see him emphasizing several Old Testament characters. And I think the best way to walk through this lengthy passage of Scripture is to look at these biblical characters and say, what is it that, that Stephen saw in their lives that he felt like, right before I die, I want to talk about these people? I mean, wouldn't that be good to know? I mean, he's getting ready to be stoned to death. His last words are, let's go back and talk about some Old Testament characters. It seems a little strange, right? Why would he do that? Well, there's some specific things that he understood about what they believed and how they believed that he looked at that and said, In my dying breath, I want to confront this error. And the best way to confront their error was with Scripture. He used Scripture they were familiar with. He used biblical characters that they knew. And let's walk through some of these. I am going to divide these into three categories. The first person is Abraham. And Abraham, he shows them, had faith in God. And I think the reason why he pointed to Abraham is Abraham was respected by all Jews. Those in the audience would have known him, they would have been familiar with him, they would have valued him, they would have respected him, and they would have listened to teaching about him. But the truth that they missed from Abraham is that when they looked, when these Jews who are opposing Stephen, when they looked at the life of Abraham, they saw someone who obeyed. Now you may think, well, what's wrong with that? But the problem was when they saw Abraham and they saw his obedience, they looked at him and in their minds, his obedience is what caused God to love him. In their minds, they saw the obedience of Abraham and how he followed God and how he even was willing to sacrifice things close to him, in order to be obedient to God, they looked at that and said, look at the obedience of Abraham. Look at how he obeyed God. Look at how he followed God. And they looked at him and said, he earned God's love and he earned God's favor. And I think Stephen looked at them and said, there's something you got to understand. Abraham did not earn God's love. God already loved Abraham. It was his faith in God that led to his obedience to God. See, in their minds, the Jewish minds, they thought, you know what, if I am good enough, if I keep all 613 of the Old Testament commands, then then God will love me. Let let, let me remind you of a couple truths this morning. Here's the first one. God cannot love you any more than he already does. There is nothing you can do that's going to make God love you more or cause God to love you less. Your, God's love for you is unchanging, which means, is an encouraging part of this, that in your life, no matter how bad you have messed up and no matter how wrong you have been and no matter how many sins you are, have been guilty of this past week, God's love for you has not changed at all. You are completely and fully forever loved by God and nothing you can do can change that. Isn't that encouraging news? Now let me give you the challenging part because we, we, we don't need to stop right there. When we understand God's love for us, it should cause us to have a committed love for God. After all, the Bible says that we love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. So the love of God was directed towards us completely and fully, demonstrated no more perfectly than in the sacrifice of Christ sending His Son the response to that, though, is we understand the love of God. We turn to him because he loves us. We love him in return. And as Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. See, this love that we have for God, the challenging part of this is I, if, if we truly love God, that that love should be demonstrated through obedience. And that's what Stephen's point was. You, you look to Abraham and you see his faith and you talk about God's love for him. What you need to understand is that it was... Abraham's faith in God and his love for God that led to his obedience to God. And that's true in your life as well. Be encouraged this morning by the truth that God can't love you any more than he already does. And that love is unchanging. But be challenged by the fact that your love for God is proven, it is demonstrated through obedience. If you claim to have love for God, but yet there is not works that come about in your life because of that love, there's a problem. Now, we understand that we do not work to earn salvation. We do not work to earn God's love, but we work because of what God has done for us. I think that was Stephen's point by highlighting Abraham. The second two characters are crucially important as well in our understanding of what Stephen was communicating is Joseph and Moses. Joseph and Moses were deliverers who had been sent by God. Moses, specifically, leading the nation of Israel out of captivity, Joseph, leading his people in the time of a famine in the land. So you have these two people. In fact, you see it in verse 35. Look at verse 35, specifically talking about Moses. It says, This Moses whom they rejected when they said, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge? This one God sent. So notice that this, he was sent by God as a ruler and a redeemer. Or another word for redeemer would be deliverer. He's saying, You have been sent a deliverer. Joseph and Moses were deliverers who had been sent to rescue and to redeem God's people, to bring them out of captivity, to secure their future. And this was the pattern throughout Jewish history. Have you ever read the book of Judges? All right. That's in the Old Testament. The book of Judges is one of my favorite books in the Bible. You have stories of Gideon and Samson and Deborah and Ehud and Eglon. It's fascinating, fascinating. But what is applicable to us this morning is the cycle. The children of Israel would rebel against God, they would turn to idols, they would turn to immorality. Remember this? And God's anger would be kindled against them for their unfaithfulness and for their idolatry. And so he would allow... A neighboring country to come in and take them captive. And they would be in captivity for usually 13, 14, 17 years till they finally realized this isn't good, this isn't pleasant. So they would turn back to God, confess their sin, and God would raise up a judge or a deliverer, redeemer, so to speak, to come in and lead his people out of captivity. See, in, in highlighting Joseph and Moses, Stephen is looking at his people and he's reminding them, All throughout your history, you have needed a Redeemer. You have needed a Deliverer. But what you really need is a once-for-all Redeemer. What you really need is not just another man to come and guide you for a few years, then later on another man. You need someone who can come and can be your Messiah, can be your Redeemer, can be your Deliverer for all time to provide eternal life that only He can provide. He's, He's looking at them and telling them, you cannot redeem yourself. You cannot deliver yourself. You cannot save yourself. Just like you couldn't have redeemed yourself or delivered yourself from famine, and you could not deliver yourself from, from captivity, you need a spiritual deliverer. Right now, you're trusting in your works, and you're trusting in your ability to please God. You're failing. You need a deliverer. And just like the people needed Moses, and they needed Joseph, you need somebody today. And in a minute, we're going to see how he points them very specifically To Jesus Christ, the once and for all deliverer, the redeemer, the Messiah. The last group of people that he highlights in this sermon that he's giving them is Joshua, David, and Solomon. You may look at those and you say, Well, what do these three have in common? Well, all three of these pointed to God's presence. In fact, in verse 46, you see that they're trying to provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. These men led the people, in the Old Testament, these men led God's people into God's presence. Joshua speaks of the tabernacle in the wilderness as a symbol of God's presence. David desired to build a house for God so that they could worship God and have his presence there. Solomon was actually allowed to build it. The point was, in fact, if you look at verse 48, you see this, that the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made by hands. He, he's looking at them and saying, you need the presence of God, and God desires to fellowship and commune with you, but your sin... Is standing in the way, and again, you need a deliverer and you need a redeemer. The third point on your outline is where we see him pointing them to Jesus. Stephen preached Jesus. In fact, look at verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. He's pointing to the righteous one, Jesus Christ, the one they betrayed, the one that they murdered, Jesus Christ. He's saying, the one that you murdered is the one that is your redeemer. The one that you murdered is the one who is your deliverer. The one that you crucified is the one that has been sent to be your once and for all Messiah. You crucified Him. The one that you needed most, the one who could solve every spiritual problem you have is the one that you rejected. He's reminding them that they broke the commands of God. He's reminding them of how they treated Jesus. He's reminding them that this Messiah that was prophesied about throughout all of the Old Testament was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, the message that you and I proclaim... It's not just a message that makes people feel good on the outside. Fundamentally, the message that you and I proclaim has to be rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. And anything that our church does in any arena, ministries, missions, outreach, evangelism, whatever term you want to use, must be rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. Because if we simply meet people's physical needs and they die with their physical needs met, they will still spend an eternity in hell. The need that needs to be met most is the need for a deliverer, the need for a redeemer. And that is the message that we are to proclaim. Notice number four, though, the resp- response that was provoked. Stephen's message provoked a response. And Pastor Jason read this verse, these verses a few moments ago, chapter 7, starting in verse 54, down through the end of the chapter. We, we see this message, notice verse 54, I want to read a couple of these verses again. And I want you to notice the hatred, the anger. When they heard these words, verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged in their hearts and gnashed their teeth at him. Skip down verse 57. Then they screamed at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They threw him out of the city and began to stone him. I mean, do you see the anger? Do you see the hatred? Simply at the message of Christ, being reminded that they could not save themselves. They needed a deliverer. They needed Jesus. The one they crucified is who they needed. They hear this message, and they are outraged at the message. This message that Stephen presented to them provoked a drastic response. But what is interesting about this, and we don't need to miss this, what is interesting is that Stephen was a young believer. Sometimes we think that simply, sometimes we think that if we are going to accomplish something great for God... That we need to set back and we need to be a Christian for 10, 15, 20 years. And we need to have all this knowledge and we need to have all this experience. But throughout history, many times, the people that God uses the greatest are those who have the least to offer God. That makes sense? I mean, they offer him everything, but they don't have all the knowledge. And they haven't been saved. And they haven't been in church a long time. Stephen was a young individual. He had not been saved a long time he had not been in church a long time he did not necessarily know a ton but when time came for his witness and his light to shine the brightest he did not set back and say you know what i'm going to let somebody else do this i don't know enough i've not been saved enough i don't have enough experience He said, you know what, I'm going to use what I have. And I'm going to use the knowledge that I have. And I'm going to use what little experience I have. And I'm going to point people to Jesus with everything that I have. If you're sitting back and you're waiting and saying, you know what, I don't know enough and I haven't been saved long enough for God to use me, you are wrong. God can use you now. You can have a testimony today. You can do great things for God now. It doesn't matter how long you've been saved, whether you've been saved a day or you've been saved 50 years. God wants to use your life to further His kingdom. It doesn't matter whether you've read through the Bible once or you've read through one book of the Bible or you've read through the Bible every year for 40 years. God wants to use your life to further His kingdom. You have a calling on your life to make disciples. And you can do that through the power of God. Do not sit back and say, you know what? I want to let somebody else do that because they have more experience and they know more. No, get involved. Let God use you. Beg God for your life to make a difference for the kingdom. Maybe you're familiar with the story of the 21 Coptic Christians from Egypt who were put to death. This news article I read was from February 2015. Y'all remember hearing about that? Maybe, maybe you do. If not, let me kind of give you the backdrop. These 21 individuals were working in an area, and as they were working, they were um, kidnapped, and they were brought out to a beach, and this was all videoed, and they, this, this, some of the images were in the media. But they were brought out and they were asked a question or they were given an option. Basically, the option was turn your back on God or die, renounce your faith or die. In fact, these 21 men were working in Libya at the time when they were kidnapped. But one of the things that's interesting is often missed that out of those 21 individuals, one was different. One wasn't like the rest of them. You had actually 20 Coptic Christians from Egypt, and you had one man from Chad. And this one individual from Chad just happened to be working with this group on the day that they were all kidnapped and brought out to this beach. And up until this day, he was not a believer in Jesus Christ. He was not a Christian. These Coptic Christians were given a choice to deny Jesus or die, and they knew who had kidnapped them, and they knew that if we deny Jesus, they will let us live, and if we cling to our faith in Jesus, we will lose our lives today. They went down through the line, and one by one, these Coptic Christians clung to their faith, and one by one, they were beheaded. And they came to this man from Chad, who up until this point, he wasn't a part of this group, he was not a Coptic Christian from Egypt, he was just a man working with them. But he looked, and they came to him and they said, reject God or die, is basically what they told him. And at this moment, he had a perfect opportunity to say, hold up, I'm just working with these people. I'm not with them. I'm not part of their group. And he looked different from them, so they would have known this to be true. And he, said, he could have said, their God is not my God. But he's, he's, he, he knelt there beside all the rest of them, looked at them, looked back at the captors as the knife is being held to his throat. And he said this, their God is now my God. And they took his life. Almost like the thief on the cross that looks to Jesus and says, I need help. I mean, this individual, unlike all the other ones, was not a Christian for a length of time. He had no biblical background or even biblical knowledge. He didn't understand what it meant to go to church and worship. All he knew is that there were these individuals here who are are willing to die for their faith who are willing to look and and acknowledge that if I say yes to God, my life is over. And in the moment, they believed so strongly in who Christ was and what Christ had did for them, that they knew that you can take my life, but you cannot threaten my eternity. And they sacrificed their life in a willingness to hold on and cling to the person of Christ. And this individual looked at them and said, that's what I need. I need their God. A God that can transform. A God that that can change lives. I need him and he died after his initial confession that their God's my God, and this is not uncommon. I mean, you go throughout church history and you see individuals who are being burned alive at the stake and being thrown to wild animals, and in the in the middle of their torture, in the middle of their death, they stand boldly and they say, "This is my God, and I cling to Him, and nothing you can do will alter." There's stories of of. of one that comes to mind, a wife who is watching, standing in the crowd as her husband is being burned alive. And she looks to him and doesn't say, renounce Christ. She looks to him and say, tells him, hold fast, we will be reunited one day. As she watches her husband die. This belief in who God is, this belief in what Christ has done, this belief in these transformed lives, people throughout history have stood firm. And it began with Stephen, who said, even though you will stone me, and even though you'll take my life, and even though you will end my life, I am clinging to the person of Christ. And it is through his testimony of who Christ was, even in his death, that God used that to spread Christianity through the region. See, I wonder how many of us would be willing to be stoned because of our faith. I wonder how many of us would kneel down on the beach and be given the choice to renounce your faith or die. I wonder how many of us would be willing to die. See, here's the truth. Before, you know, it's kind of, you're never going to be willing to die Jesus if you're not willing to live for Jesus and sometimes we look and we say you know what I don't know that I could ever do that. Well, maybe the question we need to ask is not so much about our willingness to die for Jesus. Maybe the question we need to ask is, are we willing each and every day when persecution comes, opposition, ridicule comes, are we willing to still stand for Christ and communicate with wisdom and controlled by the Spirit of God, trusting in the power of God? Are we willing to live for God today and tomorrow? When opposition comes, let me show you one final thing. I just want to mention this as we close. Number five is that Stephen demonstrated grace in his death. Verse 60, he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And saying this, he fell asleep. See, even as Stephen died, he's pointing them to the grace of God. Even as he is in his last breath, he is in a way imitating what Jesus Christ did on the cross. When Jesus looked down at his Murderers who were crucifying him and said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It's easy, listen to me, it's easy to live for God and to live out your faith when everyone is nice to you and open to it. It is much more difficult to truly live for God when there is opposition. I asked in the early service, about how many people had those people at work that were hard to work with, and Jason said, amen. I don't know what he meant by that. (laughs) But you have those people that you work with that rub you the wrong way, and you're living your faith, and you're sharing your faith, and you're pursuing this mission that God has given you. And then that person begins to push back and, and ridicule and challenge In that moment, are you still willing to point to Jesus, not just in what you say, but in how you say it and with the attitude with which you say it? There's one final thing I want to show you from this text that's not one of the points, but I think it's a great way of concluding this. As the early church was growing and expanding, they faced challenges. In fact, look at chapter 8, the first couple of verses. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison simply because they were believers in Christ. Simply because they held to who Christ was. But let's be reminded of a crucial truth. God is sovereign over persecution. The Christians were being driven out of Jerusalem. They were being drugged from their houses. They were fearing for their lives, so they're scattering to all the region. We saw them in the verse that we just read. They're scattering to all the region around Jerusalem. But God was using the persecution that was scattering them to further and, and scatter the message of Christ. See, never be tempted to think that because persecution is present that God is not in control. Never be tempted to think that because you are enduring hardship that God is not at work. Never be tempted to think that because Christianity is being oppressed in one area that God is not causing it to expand and to explode in another area. God is in control even when what we are experiencing is uncomfortable. And sometimes we can be tempted to think when trials come into our life and difficulties come into our life that that moves us out of our comfort zone and challenges us and causes us to be afraid, we can be tempted to kind of sit back and say, well, if this is happening, certainly God doesn't know what's going on. Be reminded that when God seems silent to you, just because he may seem silent, it never indicates that God is inactive. And just because you cannot see God working, it does not mean that he is not working. And sometimes what God allows to come into our lives and the persecution here that God allowed to affect the church was in reality a tool used to expand the message of Christ to those who had not otherwise heard it. And maybe what you are facing right now that is so uncomfortable and painful and fearful... It's something that God intends to use in your life to expand your witness and to expand your testimony so that other people who have not heard about Jesus can. But the only way, the only way, That in the face of persecution and difficulty and stress and pain and sickness and whatever it is you're facing, the only way that we can actually say the gospel is advancing and the kingdom is advancing through this situation is if we follow the example of Stephen. And we speak with wisdom when we don't feel like it. And we're committed to Scripture even in the hardship and we point people to Jesus when it's not maybe the reflex that we have. And then even when things are bad, we demonstrate the grace of God. And through how we talk, through the message we proclaim, and through the attitude we have in the midst of persecution, we say, I believe Jesus is real and he changed my life. You see, With Stephen... What's impressive about him is not just that he stood for Christ when he was first saved, when everything was going good. What is impressive and amazing about Stephen is that when the stones are coming at him, he's unchanged. When the stones are coming at him, he can stand and say, it doesn't change what I believe. It doesn't change my testimony. It doesn't change what Christ has done for me. It doesn't change my eternity and I can respond with grace and I can point you to Jesus because that's really all that matters. And some of you this morning, what you need to decide, the decision that you need to make is that no matter what happens in your life, good, bad, enjoyable, painful, expected, unexpected, I will live for Christ. I will point people to Christ. Not just with what I say, but with my attitude and with how I say it. Listen, we want the mission of our church to be furthered. There's exciting days ahead for Highland Park. But we've got to be determined that no matter what happens, we will cling to Christ. Will you stand with me this morning? I want to lead us in a word of prayer. And we have a a song that we're going to sing, Wherever He Leads I'll Go. And I want to challenge you that as I pray, as we sing this song, if God is speaking to your heart, that you need to respond. Will you? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your word which guides us, it convicts us, it challenges us. And God, many times in our lives as difficulties come and as challenges come and as unexpected tragedy comes, we can be tempted to allow those circumstances to dictate our testimony. But but God, I pray that you would help us to be so focused on you and so committed to the mission that you have given us and so concerned with the souls of other people that no matter what is happening in our lives, God, we would be so focused on you that we would point people to you regardless. If if, If we're enjoying just a comfortable day that we point people to you. If we're in the hospital, we point people to you. We're with people who love you, we point to you. We're with people who despise you and what we stand for, we point people to you. Help us to be who we are regardless of what's happening to us. Help us to understand that everything that you allow to come into our lives is something that you can use to further the message of Christ. But God, we have to respond correctly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have any questions or want to know more about having a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us online at hpbc.church. Please join us again next week as together we seek to know Christ and make him known.